0: We're having a yarn with Morrie Street, Morrie and his family farm Huenita, a property east of Dubbo, New England, where they focus on dryland winter cropping. And Maury also works Monday to Friday as the CEO of Grains Arana Alliance, a Central West-based, grower-driven research, development, and extension organisation funded through GRDC investment. In this episode, Morrie talks to us about why he is focused on just cropping at Huonita and why he places such importance on nitrogen in his own production system. you will also hear Mori explain his involvement with Grains Arana Alliance, or GOA, and how they aim to work with Central West producers to find answers to local cropping issues. He also talks to us about what he sees as some of the key issues that may impact broadacre cropping into the future. Local Land Services Cropping Officer, Tim Bartamote, Caught up with Maury by the fire on a very wet, rainy morning at Huanita.
1: Welcome everyone back to the podcast. We're out at Huanita today with Maury Street. Maury, welcome to Seeds for Success. How are you going today? Yeah, good. Thanks, Tim. On a rainy Friday morning. Yeah, that's it. Plenty wet out there. Can you just start off by telling us a bit about Huanita? Huanita is just
2: a small farm east of Dubbo, or about 30 Ks east of Dubbo. In the Wongarvan area, I suppose, we moved out here about must have been 15 or 16 years ago and bought the place. And yeah, we try and do a bit of dry land grain farming here, predominantly. And yeah, that's my weekend job. And then during the week, I work for Grain Alliance or Goa.
1: So it's just grain or do you
2: do a bit of cattle as well? Or We do have a few cattle running around. I mean, I guess my passion and yeah, maybe my skill is in growing grain, I suppose, with my background. But we do have some pasture in for a couple of reasons. One, to try and fix a bit of nitrogen, just with that whole nitrogen story. Continuous cropping runs that down. But I think the other thing in now geography here is issues around water tables and stuff like that. And I think we're nearly too good with our fallows and we're starting to get issues there with some dry land salinity starting to come up. So introduce pasture in to some situations there just to dry the profile out, which sounds ironic to probably pure grain farmers, but we want to actually dry the profile out to try and reduce that
1: salinity risk there in places as well. Yeah, right. So can you tell us a bit more about what it's like to farm in this Westella district?
2: Yeah, look, you know, a bit of the background on the country. I guess it's rolling, undulating country. We're actually, as we sit here now, Tim, we're nearly 100 metres higher than Dubbo, which is interesting when you think about it, but we're still only sort of sitting 400-odd metres above sea level. We've got a mixture of soil types. We've actually got three blocks now that we own and... We've got everywhere for some really beautiful, deep vertosols through red loam, but, you know, also tending into some lighter country, some more pine type country, acidic type country as well. And it all varies in depth too, but generally we've got a pretty good climate and I think we're pretty well placed geographically as well. We sit halfway between the road to Sydney and the road to Newcastle, so it's pretty good when it comes to selling grain and that as well. Pretty well located like that. I suppose the other thing I'd probably add is that, yeah, it is predominantly a mixed farming area so i sort of think of most of my neighbors they're all mixed farmers and for some of the issues i just talked about you know maybe that system is a good system as well but i just find the cropping is maybe my passion and my skill and it works in well with my career as well you're not chasing fly blown sheep when you should be at work i suppose so it works well but we are very much in that mixed farming
1: region as well yeah for sure because how would you compare say coomabella which is a bit further away and those soil types are renowned for that red, but they're almost you can treat them any way you want kind of thing yeah. to Westella.
2: Well, I think we sort of have a bit of the same, but some of those cumabella type soils are you know, we are relatively well-drained. I think if that's the stuff you're alluding to, more that on country, we do have some on type country, but it's more sort of box type country as well. So, look, everything's saturated this year. You can get bogged just about everywhere, but I think that's probably one of the bigger differences is that we're probably not quite as well-drained as some other country and it's quite interesting, I suppose I've seen over the years, so I think we're sitting on a climate, our climate's more like dubbo and and even maybe narrow mine. you start moving further east, you don't really have to go very far. I'm going to say you go another thirty k's east or between thirty and fifty ks east and your climate really starts to soften off. then you get flares growing wild on the side of the road, fifty ks east of here, it won't really do that here. I think we're sort of just on that interchange moving more into that really
1: soft long season climate it's a great part of the world i guess i'm a bit biased coming out here as a kid going to grandma's little block and always just to see how green it is this way and then going a bit further west it definitely changes but in terms of your cropping program what's your thinking there what do you guys do year after year my standard rotation is
2: basically wheat barley and canola depending on how paddocks work out we might do canola, wheat, wheat, barley, but yeah, it runs basically in thirds or quarters, I suppose. And I'm pretty fixed to that rotation. And there's probably not many years that I probably haven't sown canola here. I won't say every year we've been a success, but you know we stick pretty tight with that. And then I look at that as a reasonably sustainable rotation, I suppose, with the absence of pulses and the whole nitrogen story. But in terms of crop disease and rotational from that way, it's pretty good. And I suppose it also... I feel it sort of spaces out a bit of the workload as well in terms of sowing and harvest and operations. It tends to space that all out as well, which is big operational. small, it's important to try and address. But I guess, yeah, I just touched on then is that maybe what we're missing out of that system, that continuous cropping of non-pulse species in wheat, barley, and canola is quite heavy on nitrogen. And where we don't have a consistent pasture phase in the system and we don't use legumes very much. you got to wonder whether legumes might not offer more to that system. And interestingly, GRDC have currently invested in a project that Goa's is working on, which is looking to try and get pulses into these less traditional areas. And that's yeah, an interesting body of work. We might have to look at that. I'm certainly interested in watching it keenly going forward.
1: Personally as a
2: farmer. Personally as a farmer, before this job i I worked for a long time as agronomist as well so it's not that i haven't had anything to do with pulses before but there's probably some issues there in my mind in terms of marketability and also suitability and the management of them in this region i don't know how much detail you want to go into tim but you know things like chickpeas have probably been the one of the main pulses in the northern region and there's always a risk there with ascochyta and it's quite management dependent success in that managing that disease and with trafficability issues in wet seasons, and that's exactly when you get the worst askkachyder, you can't sort of get on the ground to spray, and we won't get a plane down here very easily to spray by air either because it's probably closer settled and further away from where those operators are based and stuff like that. So that's been you know a bit of a deterrent around particularly chickpeas. But I have grown lupins before, but faba beans might also, I mean, to me, faba beans are a terrific rotational crop, one of the better ones of them. The greatest ability to fix nitrogen, early sower, good biomass, relatively easy to harvest as opposed to harvesting chickpeas on the ground. They might be well worth a look going forward
1: as well. As I said, there's the marketing issue with faba beans. That's one of the problems. It's more that practical element of not just being able to grow them and getting yield, but actually been able to sell them as well. To sell them as well. Yeah, that's right. You know, I guess in the past,
2: urea probably hasn't been as dear as it is this year. So that nitrogen was, dare I say, maybe more affordable as bag nitrogen on the non legume species. And you don't have all that hang up in terms of management. But, you know, if this is the new world, the urea pricing, where it is there now, I mean, that's starting to change that whole equation and starts to put more
1: value in those pulses and trying to bring more of them into the system. Yeah, it's such an interesting story I find with pulses. Like, I remember looking at Kathy Hurdle's farming system work and just seeing that in some of the years just gone, I think it was last year even, most of the nitrogen was taken out by the pulses and left such little nitrogen in the soil. So it's that whole nitrogen story, which I know that you're very familiar with and very renowned for. I was talking to a producer the other day that still uses that information that you did on canola and nitrogen and that sort of thing. Yeah, right. Really benefited from that.
2: No, and I think that's the thing, you know, like some of the crops are going back to chickpeas. I mean, some of that farming systems work is actually showing that there is some benefit but in terms of residual nitrogen left over, but it's not as much as we'd like to think sometimes. But as opposed to things like faba beans and lupins, There's probably more left over in that situation. And so you've got a a greater nitrogen benefit. But no, when you look at something like canola and the demands and the removal from decent canola crops, they're they're massive. So any amount of helps,
1: better and cheaper than urea. That's a good point. But it's interesting how, yeah, some species are more, what they say they're lazy versus others that work a bit harder. So you think some of those species, like faba beans in particular, could benefit?
2: Oh, I think ultimately what you're looking at is really the harvest index. We did a bit of work in that project last year and I haven't got the data at hand, but there is a bit of an assumption that they probably all fix a similar amount of nitrogen, but that's related to their biomass. So the bigger, the bulkier the crop, the more they fix. But then you've also got to look at the grain that you're exporting off the paddock and how much of that is then exported. So things like chickpeas where they're not necessarily the bulkiest crop and, you know, they've got quite a good harvest index. So you're actually removing a greater proportion of what you fixed and exporting it as grain whereas faber beans and things like particularly broadleaf lupins because they tend to be a bulkier crop they're probably not removing as much at the end of the day so there's theoretically more left in the system when you finish sort of thing so i guess that's part of the equation there as well but faber beans definitely have a much bigger biomass potential you know in fact some of those trials we had last year at some of our sites yeah, you know, i think they have peak biomass of 10 or 12 ton to the hectare of dry matter And if you worked on the old rule of thumb that it's, is it 20 kilos per tonne, I think was the old rule of thumb. So there's, what's that, 240 kilos of nitrogen fixed, if the maths is right. So massive ability to fix nitrogen, but but they also yielded, off the top of my head, they might have yielded six tonnes of the hectare. So, you know, in grain, there's a reasonable amount that's come back off that paddock and, and exported. But anyway, nitrogen's an important aspect to pulses in the system, but it also does form another break disease break and i think when you look at a lot of farming systems they're fairly grass dominant and we don't want to grow too much canola in the rotation for risk of sclerotinia and black leg and other disease so if you just look at the pure mass we really need to bring some more broadleaf crops into the system pulses probably the other major broadleaf crop that we have outside of canola so from that rotational disease point of view there's value in bringing pulses into the system as well try and break up that system whether they be root disease, crown disease or yeah, leaf disease, there's potential
1: benefits there too. Yeah. So you're looking for species that will provide a multitude of benefits, as you said, to take your program to the next level.
2: Yeah. Well, I guess it's just having diversity in that system. There's issues. More of a monoculture becomes, I say grass dominant, as in wheat, barley, oats, triticale or any of them. But wheat's really the king, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's the predominant crop. If you continually grow them or have too high frequency in there, I mean, it starts to foster things like crown rot and yellow leaf spot. We're not really relevant to things like stripe rust and stuff like that, but certainly crown rot is a big issue and it hasn't been an issue to us since the drought broke. So it really has gone off the table a little bit, but crown rot is ever-present and when the season's turn dry again, that's probably when you really start to get hurt with those cereal-dominant rotations. So you're worried about that happening locally here? It's present everywhere. It's present in the farming system. Where crown rot hurts the most is where you get a tight finish to the year. And fair to say, we probably don't have as tough a springs here as what you do at Drangy or Warren or Ningan or Lake Oceligo or, or those more lower rainfall regions. They're probably running a greater risk of yield loss and damage in those environments than what we are here. But there's no doubt that crown rot is present here and you know, and a concern to me in my rotations and what I see other growers doing as well. So as I said, it's been off the radar for, if we had, 2016 was wet, you know, it wasn't a major issue. Then we then went into three years of drought and potentially it was probably pressuring us in the early part of the drought. The later part of the drought, we didn't really get anything in or off, and then it's been wet since. So it's been close to six or seven years since it's really been front of mind. And wet years like this, we're probably not going to see too much of a yield impact unless the season turns off. But what wet years like this do do is allow that inoculum to multiply out. And some really good work that's coming out of New South Wales DPI is having a look at crown rot and its behaviour in stubbles post-harvest. And what I really found interesting that came out of that work is that the crown rot pathogen can continue to infect stubbles post-harvest and continue to spread. So if you get a wet summer post-harvest, um, you may have had reasonably low levels in the crop, it can multiply out in that stubble so that you've gone from a low inoculum level at harvest to come around the sowing and you might have massive inoculum levels because it's essentially invaded the entire stubble that's left on that paddock. And the other interesting thing that I think is coming out of that is that we often sort of think of things like barley as being, well, the correct terminology is that it is tolerant to crown rot. It does host it, but it can equally infest barley stubble as it does wheat stubble and multiply out in it. But the other interesting one is that in oats, and that's not a massive crop in the region, but but even oats is quite tolerant and doesn't really host crown rot at all. In an oat stubble, it can multiply out in that dead host. So whilst that stubble is maintained with wet summers, we actually may see crown rot risk increase throughout that fallow period. It's not all about what happened in the year before or in the cropping year before. So that's some really interesting work coming out, which is a bit of a change in I think what we
1: thought was the case before. So a bit of a ticking time bomb going on
2: yeah look i think so i think as i said i mean it's an ever-present risk and whilst we're getting these wet seasons and good rain and stuff like that it's probably not going to hurt us too much but if we start to get some drought stresses or some moisture stresses start to set into the system and that's going to be really interesting and and without talking doom and gloom but i guess i sit here and think about it and think about a lot of these late zone crops we've got a lot of varieties that were sown later than their ideal window because that's all that growers had there's cases out there people sowing lance or wheat in the end of may or june you know they're going to have they've been really sort of hamstrung in terms of their growth through that winter period and they're going to come into that spring and they're going to be trying to do their business probably later than they should they might not have as good a root system as they might have if you have know, the tap turns off this year it could really hurt some of those late sown crops too but hopefully it
1: doesn't but i suppose we'll wait and see that's great so mori we've You've alluded to it already that you work for Granarana Alliance. Can you let the listeners know what is Goa? So we're just a small not-for-profit organisation, but I
2: guess probably we're initiated back around 2009, 2010. The organisation was sort of put together to apply for a, a GRDC project that was released at that time, which was really designed by GRDC to try and fill some gaps in the local region and create some more capacity there outside of say New South Wales DPI and anybody else. Well, the fact of the matter was there wasn't really anybody else around at that stage. So I think GRDC saw that there was an opportunity there and there was a bit of a gap in the capacity that was in the industry to tackle some work. And when I sort of say some of the gaps, it was, I suppose we started off and our bread and butter was doing some smaller type projects, things that arguably sort of might fall between the cracks of larger projects or larger organizations and stuff like that. So we did a lot of work early on in Goa's timeline, I suppose, things on controlling windmill grass. We did some work around some windrow timing in canola, which was ultimately spawned by growers' concerns over poor oil levels in canola and stuff like that. And I sort of thought, well, maybe windrow timing's got something to do with that. And it ended up showing that it can impact on oil but a much greater impact on yield yeah we did a lot of work around canola nutrition again spawned from yeah concern over canola performance and oil and thinking it might have been as a result of sulfur and our approach to sulfur nutrition what evolved out of that is that you know sulfur proved not to be as universally deficient in our systems as what nitrogen was and if i can sort of say that some of Goa's work was some of the first work that really looked hard at that nitrogen story in canola and really pushed that, certainly in our region, for some of these most would agree that we're looking at some pretty serious rates of nitrogen on canola these days. I guess some of that came out of that initial work that we were looking for responses to sulfur and we weren't finding them, but holy smokes, we were seeing these massive responses to nitrogen. And it sort of proved when we roved around the countryside doing our different trials that The vast majority of cases, we were underdoing our nitrogen in our canola crops by significant amounts. And I guess that's where some of that initial push came from to start looking at that nitrogen in our canola farming system. So, you know, we started off doing a lot of those little bits and pieces and then evolved and we ran a a number of other projects over the last 10 years, what was called Grower Solutions Groups for GRDC, which is, I suppose, a key part of that model was making sure that we engaged with local advisors and growers. And we regularly had meetings. I know Tim, you used to come to a number of them where we'd have meetings around the countryside, talk to growers and advisors about what some of their research issues were, where they saw some gaps in the knowledge or concerns or issues that were starting to stick their head up. And we could both report that to GRDC so that they could have a look at their investment strategies to address. But we also had capacity as well in that project to actually go out and do some of that work as well. Which was great. We're able to get some local work on the ground in our region and tackle some of those issues. And then we could do that pretty rapidly. We'd have another set of meetings six or 12 months later, and we could come back to that audience and say, hey, look, you know, you said you were struggling to control windmill grass or whatever it might be here's some trial work that we've done and here's some of the answers we've got so far so it was a really quick turnaround and a system to try and get some work on the
1: ground quick get some answers back to growers and we could then move on to the next thing so correct me if i'm wrong so you're a local research and extension organization Mm -hmm. that is informed and run by local like your board's made up of local producers local advisors to really understand the problems that central west particularly our producers are facing and then answering those yeah, with research. try and answer that with research. A
2: few things have changed now. As all things, I suppose it's good that I guess you continue to evolve in the process and everything like that. So a few things have changed now with our relationship with GRDC and how we do things. So we sort of split those tasks into two things. So we are actually running what GRDC call a grow a network program, which is running those engagement sessions now so we've actually got some coming up in a couple of weeks. Yeah, so we'll have them around our region and try and talk to growers about what they would like to see, and then we can feed that into GRDC and they can look at their investment strategies going forward.
1: Is that the best way for producers to know what you guys are doing, what the research is to get along to these events?
2: Yeah, look, I think it's a great way to come along and on part of those events is we'll try and feedback some information from other GRDC investments, whether goers running them or, or others. But I think it probably represents, hopefully, a really easy and accessible option for growers to come along, you know, have their say, and have that knowing that that will go to GRDC for their consideration going forward. So I think it's, if your listeners are out there and, and they've got something to go, hey, why aren't they doing work on such and such. It's just one, but hopefully it's a good way to try and get those issues into GRDC. And hopefully while you're there, you'll learn a bit of other stuff as well from the past. But my phone is always on. You can always give me a call. And then there's also other GRDC staff around the countryside and a number of other options as well. But this grower Network program is really designed to make sure that well, GRDC have got their ears on and listening to what's happening out in the field.
1: So have you alluded to a couple of examples already could you say, let's talk about windmill grass, could you give an example of how beneficial local research is to local producers? Then windmill
2: grass is an interesting one, you know, for that local flavour, I suppose, is that, yeah, you know, Feathertop roads is its cousin, I suppose. I mean, they're, they're both chlorous species, but Feathertop roads is probably an issue further north. It appears it's actually popping up further south as well. But through this central west region, you know, windmill grass has probably been public enemy number one since 2010 prior to that, I suppose, even after millennium drought, I suppose that's when they started becoming an issue, probably when a lot of sheep started to drop out of our farming system. So, I mean, it was at that time there, I think it was probably seen as a more central west problem. You know, there weren't a lot of other people talking about it or too interested in it. So we were able to go out there and do some work and develop some strategies and some tools there to... To help manage that going forward and we've had a number of field days and demonstrations and that where growers and advisors could come and see it and know that it's been tested and proven in their regions and that it works and stuff like that And there's probably not too many years that go by that i don't get you know multiple phone calls on controlling windmill grass although we haven't actively done work in that space for three four five years probably it's still a challenge for growers i don't think we've solved the problem we i think we've provided a couple of tools they're not perfect, but they're significantly better than what we had
1: before. Yeah, definitely in the right situation, they do a good job. I personally remember when I was doing agronomy out at Warren, bringing yourself in Ben and being like, hey, I've got <laughs> windmill grass. Because I knew that you guys threw the kitchen sink, essentially, at windmill grass and found, yeah, like you said, a couple of solutions. So I was able to use them and apply them in my own recommendations.
2: Yeah, and that's right. And we did chucked everything we could think of at it in terms of, you know, herbicidal control. Yeah, and I said a few things dropped out of that which were a bit unique and I think they're fairly well adopted now I think they're very commonly used out in the marketplace since those early days I think windmill grass has probably proven to be probably wider spread than we thought certainly in other regions even other states you know I'll often get phone calls on trying to manage the weeds that was an example of where we've sort of really been able to zero in on something that was relatively specific and go to work on it locally and come up with some good outcomes, I suppose.
0: Thanks for listening to part one of this two-part chat with Murray Street. Join us next episode as we continue our conversation about the future of cropping, how to boost your nitrogen efficiency and how you can get involved in the research that Goa is currently undertaking. Thanks for listening This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.